in our families as in society, there are stories we hear and stories we don't hear. And we've all had the experience of discovering knowledge of the past that shifts our very sense of ourselves. In this spirit, Taya Miles is helping shape the emerging field of public history. The particular focus of her research is as divisive in American memory as any. The conjoined stories, as she puts it, of African Americans and Native Americans. Specifically, she's bringing to light a painful chapter of the American experience where Cherokee landowners held black slaves. Still, she shows us a model for unearthing history, even this difficult, in a way that also reveals tools for its healing. If I didn't see light in the story, I could not tell it. I think about stretching the story back, as far back in time as we can find evidence to support it, and stretching the story forward to think about what's the future going to be like for our descendants now. And I don't just mean descendants of Black people, Native people. I mean all of us now. What's that future going to be like? Toward living memory. I'm Krista Tippett. This is On Being from APM American Public Media. Taya Miles is a professor of history at the University of Michigan. The MacArthur Foundation gave her a genius grant in 2011. In her award-winning research and writing, Taya Miles has uncovered stories nearly lost to memory, from the plantation of a Cherokee chief in Georgia to Indian Territory, modern-day Oklahoma, where some who survived the Trail of Tears reestablished their lives and their wealth. Taya Miles herself grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Where were the roots, or do you see the roots of your interest, your, your passion for history? in your childhood? I think that the way in which I approach history comes from times I spent with my grandmother when I was a girl. When I was very young, my mother and I lived with my grandparents. And my grandmother was one of these women who just loved to tell stories and would tell them throughout the day while she was going about her daily tasks. Mm. And I recall especially the stories that she told about living in Mississippi coming north during the Great Migration, and the struggles that she faced as an African-American woman, a single mother, and domestic worker. Mm. And I think just hearing those stories and hearing how my grandmother felt so tied to her past, how she was always on that Mississippi farm that she grew up on and in the city at the same time, Mm -hmm. influenced the way I think about the past and how near the past feels to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued given the direction your scholarship has taken. I'm, I'm intrigued by the way you seem to describe this. You say um, that there was an oral history about Native American history from your grandmother, which is kind of vague. <laughs> so uh-huh. I'm wondering, you know, what does that mean? Not, you don't say she told us this or that, but there was an oral right, history right. about Native American history. So what's lurking there? Right, well... You got me, Krista. That's It's purposefully vague. <laughs> what my grandmother told us when we were small, uh, what she told me and my cousins, was that her own father was both African-American and Native American, that his mother was Native American. However, I don't make claims to um, an Afro-Native identity, to a Black Indian identity or ancestry because I'm a scholar and I like to um, verify things. And yeah. I haven't um, explored that family history yet. Okay. 
I, I have to say that I, it also leapt out at me. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma, <laughs> oh. which is really, res- right, it's very resonant right. with, with your work. And, Absolutely. Uh, I think in general, at least when I was growing up, I would say Oklahoma was a place, well, Oklahoma was historically a place where people left their pasts behind. Mm-hmm. And um, in my family, there was a, I would say there was an oral history that my great-grandmother, who was still alive when I was a child, was part Cherokee. Mm-hmm. But I never, there was no information, right? There was right. no story attached to it. There was no, mm-hmm. I have no detail. And, it, you know, when I finally was curious enough to want to know more, everybody who might have known something was dead. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if those, that kind of came through in what you just said, that those stories don't transmit themselves intact somehow. Or Right, right. And I think that part of the reason why those stories feel um, contentious mm-hmm. is because of the history of violence that shaped those stories. Right. So I'm thinking now about this wonderful line at the end of Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved, which is really influential for me in thinking about my scholarship. And this is the line where the narrator says that this was not a story to pass on. And you can read that in two ways. You can read that this was not a story to tell again, to pass on, Mm -hmm. or this was not a story to pass on, not a story to be missed. Mm. I think that these kinds of stories that my grandmother told me that you heard from your family history have both those elements to them. We need them. We want to explore them. And yet we know that in some ways they might be dangerous. Right. And they were dangerous for those ancestors in a way, even though they're not dangerous for us, or they felt dangerous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, it sounds to me like even though there was this story within your story, you got a much fuller and surprising understanding of that intersection of African-American and Native American uh, history as a student or as a graduate student. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's right. The stories my grandmother told me were always swirling around in my head. They were so real to me and so alive And strangely enough, when I was in college and I first started studying African-American literature and I first started reading the narratives of escaped slaves, I would get so upset about these these narratives in my dorm room that I would call my grandmother up late (laughs) at night, you know, from the college campus and just tell her that I I couldn't bear what I was reading. And um, this is the strange part. Her response to my question, her response to my sadness was to tell me stories about her father, who was himself a slave as a child, and this is the the same um, the same person who she said had native ancestry. And when she would tell those stories, she would claim all kinds of amazing qualities for him. She would talk about his longevity, how he lived to be over 100 years old. She would talk about his keen eyesight and um, his amazing prowess in terms of his independence, his ability to stand on two feet. And she would attribute these to the Native American ancestry that she was claiming for him. So she would respond to my uh, desire for comfort with these stories about Native ancestry, and that stuck with me. I always um, kind of carried that. And when I came to graduate school, I began to think about two things. One was, why did my grandmother and why did other African Americans cling so closely to these ideas about kinship and alliance with Native Americans. Mm. 
And why did they think about Native American ancestry as being uh, imbued with some kind of um, special power, some kind of specialness that perhaps African-American, African ancestry did not hold for them. So I wanted to explore that, what that need was. At the same time, I wanted to explore what the relationships um, really were in ways that I could verify through historical research. Right. So even though I have yet to research my own family history, I expect that will be a retirement project, <laughs> um, what my grandmother told me really did shape the kinds of work I ended up doing in the academy. Do you feel that you've, you've started to answer those questions for yourself, that uh, what was special about that, that mixed mm-hmm. identity? I think so. I think there are multiple layers to uh, that answer. But one thing that I think has emerged from my work and the work of other people uh, in this field and the work of creative artists who are thinking about similar questions is that African-Americans are in many ways homeless on this land. Mm. I mean, of course, we, our ancestors, were snatched from our own homeland. We were brought to this place that was foreign to us. And we had to find a way to make this place fit us and to, to belong here. And I think that when you are a people searching for belonging, it makes sense to think about the indigenous population who was on this land before anyone else and to want to connect with that indigenous population. I think that's part of the power that that story holds. Do you think that happens at a, at a conscious level? I mean... I really don't think so. Yeah, I don't think that that aspect about belonging and uh, I guess what I'm describing as um, a shared collective search for home is necessarily conscious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today with public historian Taya Miles. Did your grandmother know about the history of uh, Native Americans having black African slaves? If she did, I heard no inkling of it. Um, I don't think she did. And um, I don't know if she would have told me if she had um, any knowledge of that. Really, the story that she wanted me to hold on to was one about partnership leading to survival. She was trying to give me a gift of strength, perseverance, comfort, sustenance through those stories. And slavery undoes those gifts. Hmm. You know, a parallel, again, very different, but in my child is, is growing up Southern Baptist, right? Hmm. And, and having no sense of what it was in the Southern that made Southern Baptist Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. And then learning in college that they were, that the Southern Baptists were the Baptists who wanted to keep their slaves. And mm-hmm. I remember going back and asking my grandfather, who was a Southern Baptist preacher, and my sense was that he didn't know that. If mm-hmm. he did, he had buried it so deeply mm-hmm. that that was simply a piece of history that had been not passed on, as you say, right. but not. Uh-huh. Uh, and you must have this experience when you talk about your research and your scholarship. I don't know that Americans, that in the American m- m- cultural memory, 
many people know that Indians owned slaves in the southeast and in what was called western, what was called Indian territory. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right. One of the first things people tend to tell me when they hear me speak or read my work is that they had no idea this was the case. And it was the same for me. It it took me, you know, four years of college and I think maybe three years of graduate school before I knew about this. And I, I already had an investment in the question. Right. Yeah. And something that was there in your, um, I mean, I think about growing up in Oklahoma and this that knowing that it was f- formerly the territory of the five civilized tribes, right? Mm-hmm. And never even questioning that language. And then I think it was in your, were in one of your books that you talked about how for wealthy, you know, these, especially these wealthy Cherokee um, people who you studied, landowners, owning slaves was part of being and demonstrating that civilization. Right, right. So Cherokee people and other people of the so-called five civilized tribes were really under assault, especially in the 18th century, early 19th century, by first Europeans and then Euro-Americans who wanted to take their land. And the U.S. government came in and basically said that if you want to maintain your homelands, you need to demonstrate to us that you can live with us in this space and that you are civilized. As odd as it sounds, and I still can't get my mind around this, to the U.S. government and to its citizens, civilization included the ownership of black slaves. Yeah. Well, they did in the British Empire as well, right? Right, right. And so Native people took up chattel slavery in some ways to demonstrate that they were civilized. And, you know, this fact and the stories you tell, it's, it's so painful because it's it's disenfranchisement layered on disenfranchisement mm-hmm. and it's brutality mm-hmm. layered on mm-hmm. brutality. Right. It's difficult to learn about it, to confront it, to try to talk about it and think about it. And I find that when I do share information with people, that sometimes they leave those conversations or they leave the space where maybe I've given a lecture and they still have in their mind the story that maybe their grandparents told them or the, or the story they want to believe about these relationships, which to me is another demonstration of the ways in which we need and use these ideas of the past. We need and use history today. We wrap history around ourselves and we use it to define who we are. And we sometimes don't want to face the fact that the stories we've always heard uh, may have been flawed or limited or even wrong. Right. And that's true collectively as well as individually in our family. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. I mean, let's make this a little bit more three-dimensional for somebody who might be listening and, you know, talk about... I mean, it's interesting. Your your way into Cherokee history and and all the history you do is through the experience of African-American women. Is that... Would you say Mm -hmm. that's a fair statement? Mm -hmm. And so um, your book, um, The Ties That Bind, is about... The person we zero in on is this figure of Doll. Why don't you right. tell the story of Doll and Shoe Boots? Well, first I'd like to back up a bit mm-hmm. uh, and tell you how I came to this story. I was doing dissertation research on uh, Black and Native relations in the South, and I was looking for a story that I thought would help me to both understand and unravel the complexity of these relationships. And... Um, 
it just so happened that after months of pouring through, uh, especially secondary sources, I came across a footnote that said that a man named Shoeboots married a black woman, and this was the first black Cherokee marriage within the Cherokee Nation. So that footnote really struck me, the idea that there would be a marriage between a Cherokee man and a black woman that was recorded uh, in the early 1800s. So yeah, I wanted And he to, was a wealthy, wealthy Cherokee man, right? Wealthy. I would say that in our terms, he was middle class. Oh, okay. So he was, um, he was um, solid financially, but he wasn't one of the wealthiest Cherokee slaveholders who owned something like uh, 20 or more slaves, and in some cases, 100 or more slaves. Okay. He only had a handful of slaves. Only, I say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to investigate the story and find out what was going on. And as I began to investigate, I learned that um, that footnote left out so much. And in my mind, this relationship was not what we would uh, describe today as um, a marriage. Yeah. This was a relationship between uh, a grown man in his 40s who went to South Carolina and either bought or traded for an adolescent black girl, brought her back to the Cherokee Nation, and um, began to have children with her. Dahl was owned by Shibuts, and he never freed her formally. I mean, there's that, but there was a piece of writing that's near the beginning of the book. Um, I think it was Shoeboots maybe making a case for his children. Yes. Right? And he, mm-hmm. but it, what's so striking and painful about that is um, he's making a case for these children he's had by Dahl. Mm-hmm. And he, he uses the, you know, he basically says, I debased myself. Exactly. You know, yes. and had these children, and nevertheless, then he's wanting them to be. Uh, treated decently. Right, right. I mean, this is one of these moments um, where the pain that we were discussing earlier um, really is seated. Because on the one hand, we can view this uh, emancipation document as being positive. It's an example of a Native American man freeing the children that he had with a black woman. But at the same time, he does that through a language of negativity in which he um, reiterates Dahl's status as, as a slave woman. And in the original document, it's underlined mm. that she is his slave. There's another Cherokee figure you, you've focused on, and th- th- this is a story of wealth, of plantation, um, mm-hmm. Diamond Hill. I notice uh, you, uh, in a personal statement, say that you are a passionate fan of old houses. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just, it, it strikes me that there's a connection between that and the fact that um, the public history project, and I want to talk about mm-hmm. that whole notion of public history. Mm-hmm. Um, seems to be centered in part in your work around uh, an historic house. <laughs> right, right. Why do, you lo- why do you love old houses? Tell me about that. I don't know, Krista. I mean, I, um, if I could speculate, I, I didn't know this at the time, but when I was uh, very small, my grandmother's house was um, a craftsman bungalow, and um, I loved that place. 
I loved being there with her. And I, I think I may have attached myself to that kind of a building, um, not even knowing that I was doing that. Mm-hmm. But here's something else that's um, maybe unusual, probably unusual. Um, later on, when my mother and I lived on our own near downtown Cincinnati in an area that was economically depressed, I really enjoyed uh, kind of walking the neighborhood by myself. And a number of the buildings in our neighborhood were quite old, 19th century, early 20th century row houses. And many of them were abandoned. And I would go inside. My mom would probably hmm. die when she, when she <laughs> hears this. Right. But I, I would go inside these old buildings and just, and just explore and think about who might have lived there um, years and years ago and what their lives might have been like. Because houses, old houses hold stories, don't they? They do. They do. And it, it feels tangible. You walk in and um, it's almost as if you're transported. And, and did, did this public history project with the Van House and with that whole story of this wealthy Cherokee slave owner, I mean, he had, what, hundreds of, um, or well, nearly a hundred. Over a hundred. Over a hundred. Slaves in the first decade mm-hmm. of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but did that start with you visiting that house? It did. It did. I was working on the book about Shoe Boots and Doll, and Shoe Boots and Doll would have lived in the early 1800s around, um, you know, 45 minutes away, you know, now in our time from this large plantation. I mean, Shubutz and, mm-hmm. and Adal's cabin, the place where their family lived, no longer stands. I went to the river where they lived and stood there and um, reflected on that place. But I wanted to experience a built environment that could perhaps take me back in time, viscerally, to this period of Cherokee slaveholding. So I went to the to the chief van house and um, took a tour. And this was in the late 90s. And part of me was taken by learning about the house itself, the structure, the architecture. Um, I was fascinated by a number of the architectural details, such as um, all of the little tiny Cherokee roses that are carved into the moldings mm. at the house. Mm. But at the same time, I was quite focused on the question of slavery. And throughout that whole tour, we heard nothing about slavery, now, nothing about Did you know that he specifically held slaves, or did you just knew that, that a landowner of that, of that wealth in that time would have had slaves? I knew that he held slaves you because did. at that point I had been doing enough research to know about the Van family. Okay. So I took the tour, and slavery wasn't mentioned. African-Americans weren't mentioned, uh, although the Van family's wealth was mentioned. Hmm. And, of course, these two things are tied. They're linked. You can't separate them. The Van family's wealth came from slave labor. So by the end of the tour, I was having this dual experience. One, I was enjoying the house aesthetically. uh, And at the same time, I was sort of appalled at the way in which this house was being celebrated as... um, a gorgeous architectural feat and the way in which the family's wealth was being lauded and black people's suffering was completely invisible. Right. What did you do? Did you say anything at that point to the people who were curating or? I did. I, well, I asked a question. Mm-hmm. I asked the tour guide uh, where slaves lived on the plantation. And um, the person who was working at the time, I have to be fair and say that she was you know, very young. Maybe she was a college student who was working there at the summer, you know, part time. 
she was completely flustered, as if she had never thought about the question before, never heard it before. And she got her walkie-talkie and radioed back to the main office to ask how she should answer the question. Hmm. You wrote somewhere um, that you became committed to a more ethical telling of the story. Is that right? Yeah. And then mm-hmm. that gets at the work of the historian and and I, I the discipline of that. And I see you in places, you know, it seems to me that at different points in your career, you've rediscovered the fact that telling history is never pure, that you're always coming at it from some direction. Mm-hmm. And you being, I don't know, maybe because you do then collect so much information, you know, in a way, not, not being haunted, but just being very keenly aware that there, are, there would be many ways to tell the same story that you're immersing yourself in. Right. Well, I think I came to historical scholarship um, from a sideways route. I never thought of myself as becoming a historian. I only was aware that I was interested in the past and it held a good deal of power for me personally and that it seemed to hold a good deal of power for my family in terms of the ways in which we defined ourselves and thought about our place in society. So I came to this work really with a feeling that studying the past and sharing the past was about making it usable for people today and was at the same time about being a witness for people in the past whose lives have been forgotten about or who suffered unjustly. They would be honored Mm -hmm. by having me and other people who do this work remember them. At onbeing.org, you can travel to the Chief Van House and see photos of the buildings that captured Taya Miles' historical imagination, from the red brick facade to the barrels of whiskey in the basement to a wooden cabin where slaves on the plantation lived. You can also read Taya Miles' essay, The Dead Call Us to Remember. It's featured in a booklet she wrote together with her students, piecing together the complex story of slaveholding at the Chief Van House go deeper inside this untold chapter of American history. Again, find links, photos, maps, and more all at onbeing.org. Coming up, more about the idea of public history. Also, what Taya Miles calls the spiritual and metaphysical work of history. What it looks like when encounters with the past help repair present divisions. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, Toward living memory. Taya Miles is an interesting voice in the emerging field of public history. She's a professor of history at the University of Michigan and received a 2011 MacArthur Genius Grant. 
We're talking about her original research into a painful chapter of American history, the intersecting stories of African Americans and Native Americans, and the little-remembered fact that some wealthy Indian landowners held black slaves. At bottom, Taya Miles' work is about making history useful to common people in shared life, stretching the canvas of the past wide enough that it holds both hard truths and healing. You've written somewhere about, or you mentioned, um, that at some point you had a crisis of faith in history that almost led you to quit the field. What, what was that about, and what, what pulled you back in? Well, I've had a number of crises <laughs> as a researcher, yeah, um, and um, often they've taken place in archives. Actually, when I've <laughs> when I've when I've tried to reconcile um, what it is that I want to do with what exists, or with what other people um, think ought to be done in historical writing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of these moments uh, was in a graduate student classroom when I learned that uh, Native people owned black slaves. Another moment was when I talked with an archivist um, at a state archive uh, where a number of historians had traveled to do work on Southern history. And I told him that I wanted to study African-American and Native American women, and he laughed uh, in his response to me. Mm. I was still a graduate student at the time, and uh, I was very vulnerable to um, to being told that my work didn't have value. So when this archivist laughed, laughed at me and then said that African-American women were not important enough and Native American women were not important enough to be recorded, let alone if you thought about them together, um, I just thought that my, my work was all over and that I should just pack my bags and leave. <laughs> I packed my bags and leave graduate school, that I would never be able to do what I felt so passionate about, which was to unearth and tell these kinds of stories. And uh, at that time, I I went to the office of a mentor of mine, a Native American historian, Jeannie O'Brien, and told her that I felt that it was all over. And um, she told me that if I knew that Shoeboots lived, and if I knew that Doll lived, that I needed to keep looking for them, because surely I would find some record of their existence, of their lives, to be able to fill out that picture. And that gave me the affirmation I needed to keep looking. And it was within a matter of probably six months that I found the document you mentioned uh, where Shibuts emancipated his children. That was the first thing I found Mm. that told me, yes, I can tell this story. And this language that that you used a minute ago about honoring, witnessing, and making this knowledge, making this fuller story useful um, to people now is kind of a definition of this emerging field of public history. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Is this a new way to, to, to think about history and the work of historians? Well, my sense is that people have been doing public history for decades. Yeah. And especially uh, museum practitioners, archivists, people in local communities have thought about their work as being usable and useful for a public. But it's academic historians um, for whom this field might feel new. And I think it's also um, a realization on the part of 
perhaps uh, even more recent generations of scholars that if we want to make a difference in communities, if we have um, a sense of political urgency around some issues, that we have to make links, we have to make ties with um, where historical questions are being lived out in the real world, that we can't just write specialized monographs that are read by, you know, a small subset of people. And, you know, as I was reading into you and just learning some of the things that you know that are that are about all of us, I mean, they are about America, right? Mm-hmm. They are about all of our history in which all of our ancestors, whatever color their skin, were complicit mm-hmm. um, and involved. Um, I was thinking about an event I was at a couple of years ago, um, which brought together a lot of amazing people um, in the nonprofit world, uh, the academic world, and there was a a pretty senior person in a big foundation who was talking about initiatives to to bring the issue of race and the history of race. And the, and the history in particular of, of what happened to African-Americans in this country, kind of into an imagination in a new way. This was around the election of President Obama. Mm. And somebody else who was there, and this is just, I've just remembered this, this particular thing as I'm talking to you, said, I don't think we can let ourselves reckon with the history of African-Americans until we reckon with what happened to Native peoples. Hmm. Okay. So, but the effect of that, and I, I just wonder if this is something that you become aware of because you're working at the intersection of these two groups. Right. The effect of it was almost to stop the discussion cold, right? right? right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was too much, right? It's mm-hmm. too much to do all of that at once. Is that a dynamic that, is there, are there dynamics related to that that you come across? Mm-hmm. I think there have been those dynamics. I hope they're changing. Mm-hmm. It's been the case that scholars who focus on a particular ethnic studies area, such as African-American studies or um, Latino, Latina studies, have felt that uh, there was almost a competition around, you know, which group was the most oppressed, which group should be at the the center point of analysis or discussion right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has done exactly what you've suggested. It's not productive and it shuts down a dialogue. What new projects in ethnic studies are uncovering is that these groups cross paths in many ways historically. All of these groups, every group in the United States um, has had a point of linkage, intersection, connection, overlap with other groups. And that until we understand all of those complexities, we don't understand the history of this nation and the ways in which we need to and can work together in the future to build a more democratic society. I'm often aware of, I'm aware, I mean, I'm not the only person who's aware of this, of how hard it is to have these discussions or what to do with this history in a way because Mm -hmm. it is so painful and shameful, right? Right. And I wonder what you've learned from your research and, and from the perspective you bring as a public historian about, you know, 
how do we start a new kind of discussion about race, racism, um, slavery, whether it's Native Americans or right or uh, mm-hmm. or whites? It seems to me that another thing that goes wrong that even the language kind of um, booby traps the discussions um, that when you start talking about oppression or when you start talking about racism, people start defining themselves over against that language. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, you know, what are, are you learning things about finding whole new ways in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These projects that are situated within public history, they're about people showing up in particular places, out there in communities, at public sites, in museums, and working with other people. And I think that that kind of spirit opens conversations. Mm -hmm. It makes people more willing to listen. I experienced that personally with my work in Georgia. Um, When I first arrived at the Chief Van House site and and then um, kept coming back to do research there, I think there was a little bit of um, distance on the part of the people who worked at the site. And uh, these were white Southerners. These are white Southerners Mm -hmm. who work at the site still. There was some distance there. I think they wondered what I was all about and uh, what I was doing, trying to talk about African-American experience. I think they worried that I might try to be especially critical as a black woman coming in to that place, asking those questions. But what I found was that over time, when I kept showing up, we found ways to connect with each other. Hmm. We found ways to talk with each other um, despite and through the pain of this past. So, for instance, I learned after probably five years of going to the site that one of the rangers at the site who had uh, a, a good deal of input on the interpretation there was herself descended from white slaveholders. Mm-hmm. And when she told me this, and I have a permission to, to repeat this story, when she told me this, um, it was a revelation that brought her to tears that she had been holding back from interpreting black experience in this Cherokee site because of the shame of her own family's history. Right. When we talked about that and we kind of pushed through that together, she became the greatest champion for African-American interpretation at the site. I mean, she applied for funding. Hmm. Uh, she... Uh, she researched and actually mounted an exhibit that's all about African-American experience at the Chief Van House. But it took that relational foundation, that collaboration, to make it happen. Also, I think the time, right? You said five years. Oh, absolutely. And I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. I just knew that I wanted to keep showing up and, and um, trying to learn about this place. And this is On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today with public historian Taya Miles. I was looking at, um, uh, I think this was part of uh, the public history project. You, this seems simple, but it's the title of a research project you did with graduate students. And the title is um, Blacks, Indians, and the Making of America. Uh, 
Somehow mm-hmm. that's a very spacious way to talk about something that's fraught with complexity and difficulty. And and mm-hmm. do you know what I'm saying? Often when we frame these discussions, they get framed in terms of, uh, as I said, oppression, racism, the what went wrong. It's right. It's the, it's the mm-hmm. worst moments. It's the worst mistakes. Mm-hmm. And you are not in any way covering that up. I mean, you're bringing that into the light, but you're also putting into the larger, in a way you could say, you're putting it into the context of relationship over generations right. and hundreds of years mm-hmm. um, that's larger than that darkest moment. If I didn't see light in the story, I could not tell it. Because that's why I'm doing this work. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this work to try to contribute something that can move us toward healing, you know, across and among communities that have experienced such divisiveness. That is, I just, it's really interesting because you are bringing the light in by telling the truth and just making the discussion bigger, right? Making the, creating a larger mm-hmm. vision, even of the components that are there in history that can be part of that healing, right? That mm-hmm. predate what went wrong. Well, I think about stretching the story back, as far back in time as we can find evidence to support it, mm-hmm. and stretching the story forward to think about what's the future going to be like for um, our descendants now. And I don't just mean descendants of black people, native people. I mean all of us now. What's that future going to be like? And how can we lean on what we know about the past to reach toward a more positive future? And I also think about um, broadening the story, I guess, um, up. And this gets to, you know, I don't know, maybe sort of a metaphysical kind of aspect, maybe you would say a spiritual aspect to what I'm trying to do, which is to connect us across time um, to these individuals who really are our ancestors, who deserve to be remembered. Mm -hmm. So something we haven't touched on, but we need to, is that your work, your work of shining a light on... uh, Cherokee slaveholding of black slaves is uh, is painful and controversial for for Cherokee people. I mean, you, you tell a number of stories in your that you write about um, people really, in a way, not wanting you to bring this out into the open. That that it's so difficult. And um, has that been hard for you? It has been hard in moments mm-hmm. um, to feel that. Um, that my work might not be accepted or valued um, by some people because of their desire to um, look away from this past. But I have to say that my experience of doing the work and sharing it um, really reflects what I have found in the history. And that is, at the same time that there are people who will turn away, there are people who will open up. And this is one thing that I really feel inspired by and that um, keeps me returning to what really is uh, an incredibly difficult and painful part of our collective past, which is slavery. And that is, at the same time that there were individuals who were doing atrocious, inhumane things, there were always individuals and groups who were confronting that and facing them down and willing to risk their own lives for others. If we didn't have that to hold on to, uh, I don't think that I could do this work. Mm-hmm. You're husband is from a Northern Plains tribe. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that means that your in-laws 
are Native mm-hmm. American, and your right. children are both Native and Black, right? Mm-hmm. So in terms of making history useful, I mean, I wonder, what does that look like when you see that happen, either in people you encounter through your research or even, I don't know, how you talk to your children about their mm-hmm. history? Mm-hmm. My children are three. Okay. And, uh, I have seven-year-olds who are twins. So, yeah. um, for me, making history useful is about having a voice, making a contribution to the ways in which people imagine themselves relating in a broader shared culture and a broader shared society. So by unearthing these stories of the past that demonstrate, without a doubt, that people from various groups that think they now should be divided, actually interacted on a number of registers historically, Mm -hmm. I think um, creates an incentive and also in some ways creates um, a map for how we can interact today. I mean, I think also this probably takes time, right? We've talked a lot about time. I mean, so Mm -hmm. this scholarship of yours is still very new. but Mm -hmm. mm, So I'm not sure this is a fair question, but have you seen interactions, specific relationships between, let's say, Cherokees and and African-Americans, mm-hmm. that people connecting around this mm-hmm. new imagination. Mm-hmm. I've seen it a little bit, and I hope to see more of it. Mm-hmm. One thing that I hope follows from all the scholarship being produced is um, artistic production. So, you know, um, more novels, you know, more paintings, more films that I think will take the next step in bringing people together. But there are a few examples that give me quite a lot of hope. I mean, one of these examples comes from someone who um, is a a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, who actually um, serves on the tribal council there, and who I encountered years ago doing research. And he was someone who was a little bit, um, how can I put this? He wasn't very open to the idea that descendants of slaves should be Cherokee citizens. And he didn't really want to talk about that aspect of my research with me when we encountered each other in the archives. But over time, we kept seeing each other in the archives and we started kind of trading notes. And um, at some point during his research, he came across a tidbit about an enslaved woman named Pleasant who uh, worked on the Van Plantation. And he gave me this tidbit about her. And soon thereafter, he told me that he thought his mind was changing about whether or not descendants of freed people should have citizenship hmm. in the Cherokee Nation. So, and again, this was over a matter, you know, of uh, years right. that this that um, time took place. That's right. There's yeah. that time. But I think hmm. that it can happen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it does start with a, a, a one-to-one relationship that grows and deepens over time. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else? I mean, we've covered a lot of territory. Is there anything you just want to add that is important to you that I haven't mm-hmm. asked you about? Or... I don't know. I think I should add a disclaimer to some of my comments, Krista. <laughs> like because, because, I mean, I think I'm an odd duck in some ways um, in terms of the way I think about history. Mm-hmm. When I described uh, a metaphysical sort of spiritual aspect to what I do, mm-hmm. I think some historians would cringe at that kind of language. Um, but I've always felt that um, emotional knowledge is an important aspect of the way that we learn and the way that we analyze what it is that we find. And I I can't discount that. Yeah. And don't you think that that 
our culture is that even science is waking us up even neuroscience is waking mm-hmm. people oh, up to yes. that and so waking up the academy yes. then as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's such a good point right when we learn from research in the sciences that while we think we're making rational decisions <laughs> it's mostly our emotional brain that's acting right 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 right, mm-hmm. right. so you're 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 validated <laughs> maybe so Taya Miles is chair and professor in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. She's also a professor of American culture, Native American studies, and women's studies. Taya Miles is also the author of The House on Diamond Hill, a Cherokee plantation story. Read more of her writing at onbeing.org, including a link to her essay, Obama and Big History, where she writes more personally about what she calls two versions of history. There's the big history of presidents and politics alongside the micro-history of people in the throes of their time. She got us thinking about the consequences of forgetting and remembering in our own families and in the world now. And we were intrigued by her thought that artistic production is one way to reclaim stories forgotten or ignored. So we wonder, have you unearthed history with painful or healing truths or both? Are there stories or pieces of art you'd like to share with others? Send us your photos, drawings, poems, and reflections at onbeing.org. There you can download a free copy of this show or listen to my unedited interview with Taya Miles. And be sure to like us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash onbeing and follow us on Twitter, our handle at beingtweets. This program is produced by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Susan Leem. Anne Breckbill is our web developer. Kate Moose is a consulting editor. A special thanks this week to Dave McGuire. Trent Gillis is our senior editor. And I'm Krista Tippett. On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. And the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof on journalism, compassion, and the wide ethical lens he's gained on human life, both personal and global. Please join us. This is APM, American Public Media.